to the fourth episode of our conversation series. Today we're hosting Professor Christian Jopke from the University of Bern, and we'll be talking about his new book, Neoliberal Nationalism, Immigration and the Rise of the Populist Right. It's no longer sufficient, if it ever was, to look at the Western states' immigration and citizenship policies through the single lens of advancing liberalism. Instead, two additional forces need to be reckoned with, a new nationalism, but also the neoliberal restructuring of state and society in which it is generated. Jopke demonstrates that many of the new policies have their roots in neoliberalism rather than the new nationalism. Moreover, some of them, such as earned citizenship, are the product of neoliberalism and nationalism working in tandem in terms of neoliberal nationalism. The neoliberalism-nationalism nexus is complex, Jopke argues, its elements sometimes opposing, but sometimes complementing, or even constituting one another. Welcome, everybody, to our conversation series. Today we're hosting Professor Christian Jopke, who um, is a prominent sociologist at Chair University of Bern and uh, a student of eminent Jürgen Habermas during his student years in Germany. He later received his PhD in sociology from the University of California in Berkeley in 1989. He authored more than 100 publications in major sociology journals and is one of the most widely cited sociologists with 16,000 citations still counting. So his books are published by major academic presses, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, and are considered as classics in the field of migration studies. Christian Bjorke presents, um, well, present current research cover social movements and the state citizenship, immigration, most recently religion and politics, and even more recently, um, a very interesting intersection of neoliberalism and nationalism. His most recent culture, again published in widely in core journals in, in, in the United States and the UK, um, addressed these issues. And his recent book, Neoliberal Nationalism, Immigration and the Rise of Populist Right, Again, this is the book that he'll be talking about and the key argument from this published by Cambridge University in this year deals with this complex intersection between nationalism and neoliberalism. So we're thrilled and honored to have you, Christian, here. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward for your uh, for your talk. Yeah, thank you, uh, Tonic. Uh, this is the book. I love the cover. <laughs> and uh, I proposed it to the editor and uh, I suspected they wouldn't go for it because a woke may read it as a denigration of uh, homosexuality. <laughs> no, they were cool enough against my uh, suspicion to to go for the cover. It's slightly anachronistic, but the Donald may come back. Uh, the, the, the book, uh, in empirical terms, mainly covered immigration policy and citizenship policy. That, I figure from your uh, introductions, is not your primary interest. Um, 
uh, as I gather, your primary interest is actually something that is not in the book at all, um, religion and, and politics. That's something I worked on uh, not presently in past years, uh, burnt my fingers with making um, orientalist statements about Islam in the West and in general. I have to say I became tired of this heavily policed uh, uh, field. Um, so religion is not in it. Um, uh, this book is um, born out of a shock. In 2016, there were two um, unforgettable shocks. Um, the first shock, shock in my life was uh, as a four-year-old or something, suddenly I heard voices saying Kennedy was shot. Um, and I still remember where I was, sort of, in the living room of my grandmother. Um, I didn't know anything about what the event meant, but somehow it was big. And the second such, sec, second such experience was uh, uh, in, in, uh, at 9-11, at uh, the 9th of September, uh, 11th of September, um, the Americans always shift days, month, right? 9-11, they call it, 2001. I knew exactly in what curve, uh, uh, street curve in, in Fiesole, uh, where I was uh, uh, domiciled then, I was when I heard this unbelievable news. And 2016, there were two such uh, shock events where I exactly remember where I was. In both cases, I was in bed. <laughs> And I had a voice suddenly in June, it was, hey, Christian, Brexit. And then a few months later, Trump made it. What? These were shock experiences. I'm a diehard liberal. Um, I was and remain convinced of sorts that liberalism is the strongest game in town. And these two events showed us it is not. I had, and, and then the idea of the book was born, and therefore this Schulterschluss or this uh, Zungenkuss <laughs> is um, emblematic of, of the double shock. Um, this is when the idea of this book was born, simply um, to reconsider um, the field on which I had mostly worked on in my active scholarly life. It's not all these things that. Uh, well, yes, sort of all these things that uh, Tony can mention, but the red current, um, the red threat, um, not current, the red threat in the last, um, well, by now three decades uh, plus, uh, um, basically from my uh, Florence time on, was to understand immigration and citizenship uh, as policies, as the politics surrounding it, uh, broadly comparative, in the Western world, I always looked at the usual suspects. I confess this limitation. Um, I never looked at anything else but the West and only causally uh, at the rest. So this double shock was the invitation to simply reconsider my own uh, thinking about these two policy political fields. Um, call it broadly understood membership policy, membership politics in the contemporary liberal state. I had thought so far that the story of evolving immigration and citizenship policy was one of um, 
prevailing liberalism. <laughs> liberalism, uh, as flat as it is. Um, I, um, I worked on uh, immigration policy and how this policy becomes ever less um, racially and ethnically selective. Uh, a book called Selecting by Origin, which followed the line from ethnically selective towards Naya, universalistic, mostly achievement, not ascriptive, ascription-based uh, selection policies, to use that little bit of Parsonian jargon here. Uh, broadly comparative, um, with a very fascinating, I remember the excitement of doing that, uh, look at uh, Israel as a kind of a French case of one doesn't know whether it's liberal or something else. Um, and I looked at citizenship from the same perspective of evolving liberalism. That was the idea of citizenship light. Um, in 2010, I had a little book called, couldn't be more bland than that, uh, uh, Citizenship and Immigration. And the idea there was um, in, in Western countries, particularly in Europe, where there have been more changes to citizenship than in the classic immigration countries, something like enlightened citizenship was evolving. And when I, um, uh, that means a citizenship that is easier to get, you don't have it by birth, that However, it's less exclusive with respect to the rights attached to it. There has been an upgrade of uh, non-citizen rights and somehow not really a downgrade, but uh, a generalization of privileges that or rights that previously were those of citizens to non-citizen, various kinds of non-citizen categories, immigrant categories, broadly speaking. And the lightning meant uh, that the identities connected uh, to the institution of citizenship uh, in terms of the expectation of a state, uh, what it expects of its members and of its new members, um, there was this spreading idea, just liberal identities, right? Uh, nothing ethnic, nothing ethical, sittlich in the German uh, meaning, nothing thick, but just increasingly thin and procedural kind of applied uh, political liberalism um, and with a big celebration of diversity on top of it. So now 2016 forces us to reconsider all of that. And the simple question in this book is, has that changed uh, the picture? Um, of course, uh, 2016, when I started the book, uh, uh, is uh, very short time frame. So to observe changes in such a small window, basically the work was finished already in 2019 and then it went to various phases of production. Uh, so um, it was not just the event um, or the events in the plural and their impact, but the forces that were driving uh, these double events and the most uh, current name for these forces is uh, right-wing populism, um, nationalist populism, if you like. Um, and I looked at um, yeah, the role that uh, uh, particularly political parties that, that um, carry such agenda, uh, right-wing nationalist uh, populist, um, the impact that such parties um, might have had or had had on um, on these two policy fields. So um, 
that allowed me uh, just not to start in 2016. Uh, that would be absurd. That Donald even started being in office only uh, only in early 2017. So uh, the subtitle, in a way, flags that um, longer um, time dimension: the rise of the populist right and what it does to immigration. Uh, initially, I played with the idea um, just to call it immigration and citizenship and the rise of the populist right, but that becomes so long and so tongue-twisting, and I think regular people just, when they see immigration, they know somehow citizenship is uh, is also uh, implied by it. Uh, so to have just, I always like the simplest titles, uh, the, the most uh, economical titles, and using the least and the least complicated so, uh, and essentially, uh, what it meant at a conceptual theoretical level was to complexify uh, the conditioning factors of evolving immigration and citizenship policy, not just evolving liberalism, less discrimination, etc., more inclusiveness, uh, more liberalism as a shorthand. There are two additional factors that have to be considered if one um, looks at these policies. One is neoliberalism. And here much of my effort was actually to draw a clean distinction between liberal and neoliberal. And I had not previously done that. This lightning idea confounds the liberal and neoliberal elements, or the lightning has a lot of neo to it, even though maybe not, because what the neo does to liberalism is also, um, Foucault was the first to observe that, every disciplinary uh, controlling surveillance kind of uh, dimension that that is, of course, not a part of uh, liberalism as classically un understood. So neoliberalism is a first factor, kind of, and then one has to see how it becomes operationalized in terms of uh, who carries such ideas and such programs. I talk about it now only at the conceptual level of what is the matrix, as it were, of, of forces that one has to consider when one wants to understand the contemporary um, uh, development of, of these two policy fields. Neoliberalism is one, and nationalism is the other. Um, and with nationalism, that was not, of course, my initial concept. My initial concept was populism. And it still pops up in the subtitle, I think for the sake of catchiness and just what is the intuition behind the whole thing, it makes perfect sense. It was the Honestly speaking, the idea of the editor uh, at the press to, uh, to suggest, I actually came up with horrible titles, incomprehensible uh, titles. And I have to thank uh, John Haslam, the editor of the press, will, will never see that uh, podcast here. But I have to thank him to push for simplistic titles, uh, including the one of neoliberal nationalism. Which is a bizarre title. I will go into um, in a few seconds, perhaps. So the matrix of forces impinging on contemporary citizenship and immigration policy is liberalism, neoliberalism, and nationalism, cum populism. That is the starting point. Um, in a way, to give up, to 
to give out already one of the um, discoveries that I made as I went along, uh, reading, 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 essentially, uh, and then finally uh, filling it, <laughs> um, yeah, um, um, putting it all on paper to put it in a very sanitary way. Um, um, the, uh, now I lost my train of uh, thought for a moment. Um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, one of the um, surprising uh, findings when I went along the way was that many of the contemporary restrictive uh, policies, because indeed, if these days, particularly citizenship policies, uh, Revised, it is not in the not any longer as it was until the late 1990s in the liberalizing direction, more inclusive direction, introducing new solely, lowering the hurdles and thresholds for naturalization, etc. Know that the general uh, direction is restrictive. Uh, these citizenship tests that have been uh, mushrooming uh, in European countries. Uh, uh, civic integration um, is is the new um, mainstream policy, which comes with a very control-minded uh, face of uh, assuring that people are in work, that they get in work. I mean, immigrants or citizenship applicants get in work as quickly as possible. That they adhere to liberal values. That. Um, that um, they have not violated uh, even administrative law in some countries already speeding tickets of the sufficient number in Austria, I think, can, can lock you out of uh, citizenship at least for a number of years. Many of these restrictive-minded, uh, nasty, um, little or not so little moves are somehow neoliberally motivated and driven and uh, presented, and not in the first, in a nationalist populist medium. I think these parties, with some exceptions, of course, exceptions are the two countries in Europe where the, uh, these parties are particularly strong. That is number one, Denmark, and number two, uh, the Netherlands. There one can see, indeed, direct uh, um, impacts of their agendas and their claims to the degree that they had at least a, con um, a support effect on minority governments, as it was for many years in Denmark, or that they were even minority partners in coalition governments, and it was for a while in, uh, in, the, in the Netherlands. Um, apart from that, the impact of these parties is kind of nil. Um, the bigger restrictive moves from <clears throat> asylum policy on and also family reunification policy on to talk now about immigration policy has been done by mainstream parties, uh, kind of right of center mostly, mostly indeed, not so much left of center, even though occasionally also left of center. It didn't need much uh, input from, from the extreme right to shift policy um, uh, decisively uh, further towards uh, towards um, a nationalist populist agenda. Uh, so uh, um, uh, neoliberalism as a control-minded uh, disciplinary policy uh, somehow having become mainstream within center-right parties 
in the first and to a degree also center left parties, those which are these famous, um, um, they called uh, Anthony Giddens, how did he call it? Uh, the Germans called it New Center, um, the third way, the third way. Uh, it, 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 this has done the mainly the, the main dirty job, and, and these extreme parties, with some exceptions, are, are kind of uh, uh, peripheral. So that, that is one uh, um, um, message uh, of uh, of the book. Perhaps of most interest to you is. What I call in chapter one of this book, I don't know to what degree you had a chance to look at it, the neoliberalism nationalism. A long time I played with the idea, should I call it also neo-nationalism and not just nationalism? But you know, too many neos spill the page. So just for the sake of economy, I, I, I reserved the neo to neoliberal uh, and I, uh, um, did not do that with, with, with nationalism. I remember one conversation with uh, uh, Lars Eric Sedermann colleague, uh, from uh, Zurich. Uh, I presented actually this very first chapter. Um, was it the first or another one? I don't remember. Constance. I think it was Constance. was there. And, and I, I was full into the neo 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 nationalism. Come on, Constance. What neo nationalism is? Um, call it ethnic, call it whatever. Uh, the new word. I still think um, the nationalism giving content to contemporary populist parties and movements is of a specific kind. And I do think to the degree that these parties, and that is now a rather daring generalization to make, to the degree, to the limited degree that they have an ideology, one that is having um, thinkers uh, putting their heads on it, uh, as it were. And generally, nationalism, as you all know, one of the elements or features of it, it doesn't have great thinkers. <laughs> Uh, that, that was the starting point of a book I loved very much. 30 years ago, I read by Roman Sporluk, actually an Ukrainian uh, scholar, a book called Communism and Nationalism. And he tried to show in that book that communists, uh, not only communists had ideas, as we all know, uh, the classical uh, Marx canon, also nationalists had ideas. And uh, he, he used Friedrich List, the German um, uh, 19th century Prussian um, kind of political economic reformer as, as an example. But <laughs> that is exceptional, you know. Uh, nationalism is might mostly something described by scholars, but not something articulated uh, by those who are within the movement, as Karl Marx clearly was with respect to communism. So to the degree that there is um, an ideology mm, um, and driving many of these uh, populist nationalist parties, I would call it ethno-nationalism. And that was not my uh, wording. That is actually a wording of one of the rare intellectuals uh, um, articulating the views of, of such nationalists, namely uh, this French guy, uh, uh, Alain de Benoist, he talked about um, uh, 
ethno-nationalism, it's the idea the nationalism you see in these parties is not of the brutish, racist kind of, it doesn't give this typical element of much of nationalism, uh, we are superior to others. No, the new ethno-nationalism is simply a kind of copycat of uh, multiculturalism, it's, it's kind of a multiculturalism adapted uh, to the majority group. Um, as uh, Tagiev was, I think, the first who formulated that in the French context, uh, it all started with the right to difference. Um, and that was the uh, logo of the uh, um, multiculturalists to the degree uh, that you could, could find them in France. Um, and the uh, populists then said, uh, Le Pen, uh, most important, yeah. <laughs> But we also have <laughs> the right to be different. We do it in our country and you do it in your country. So please go back. This is a kind of symmetric, not quite Herderian, symmetric nationalism. Let a thousand flowers bloom on the beautiful meadow of humanity. It is more, um, well, yeah, a nasty uh, exclusion and uh, if not expulsion minded in concrete terms. But still, it is. Uh, uh, a notionally non-racist, non uh, non-discriminatory to the degree that this is possible, um, uh, yeah, non-hierarchical um, uh, idea of, 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 of nationalism. I think one can find that in the programs of um, a lot of populist parties, particularly in the Danish uh, case, I, I found a lot of very almost verbatim uh, similarities yeah so that is ethno uh, uh, nationalism but such ethno nationalism has had as most of these parties with the danish exception of course no impact on policy a policy at the time in denmark to state of the danish case was done by a minority a conservative neoliberal government actually who were perfectly at ease with um, with all the suggestions, uh, binding suggestions, because that was a condition for the, the Danish People's Party to support uh, the minority government. They were perfectly at ease for it, could easily translate it into, into, uh, into neoliberal language. In Denmark, the idea is, I, I have a small section on that, and I call Denmark, actually, I, I, I discuss it in the context of family unification policy, I call it liberal but harsh, or liberal and harsh, which is uh, taken from the title of, uh, of, of, of an article in the New York Review of Books, which I found very uh, remarkable, and it completely matched what you observe on the ground. Another word for liberal and harsh is neoliberal. The idea in Denmark is that is what is shared by the Danish People's Party as much as by um, yeah, uh, the uh, 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 national or conservative liberals who were in charge, the, the two Rasmussens, I think two Rasmussens, who can contribute, whoever can contribute to, whoever is a cost factor is not with us. With that, you can go a long way in being nasty to asylum seekers toward family. The, the Danish then invented this uh, primary connection idea. I forgot the exact title of it, that uh, you have to prove if your spouse from abroad is to join you that your um, 
center of life really is in Denmark and not abroad. That led to abstruse decisions were actually expats going to California, to the Scripps Institute in San Diego or whatever, really uh, completely privileged guys uh, came home with an American and the American uh, was just, uh, the idea was actually, why don't you stay uh, in San Diego? It's much better weather there and they were denied uh, this family reunion or the visa for uh, for for this American to but whoever can contribute, that's the key neoliberal idea. And that is not liberal. Sure, it shares with liberalism the individual centeredness, the uh, yeah, the individual centeredness, the idea achievement, not description. Um, but the new is the complete eradication of a social dimension. I would think that's, of course, a very, very daring uh, notion that leading us into a different field, kind of more, I don't know, a political theory or political philosophy that liberalism properly understood is something that approximates social democracy, something that has a democratic dimension, an equality dimension, uh, which, which is visible in neoliberalism only in a very thin way. Of course, non-discrimination diversity is also perfectly compatible with neoliberalism. And neoliberals are furious about uh, racial discrimination, sexual discrimination, even sexual preference uh, discrimination most recently. That's kind of the hottest game in town with all the trans business, right? <laughs> perfectly at ease with it. In America, you remember there were these toilet laws. Uh, well, I will not give you the details. Probably most of you know it. And it was the big firms in North Carolina where that law was passed that that threatened uh, uh, to to move out of, of of this completely retrograde state. So woke capital is uh, is the uh, is the um, sub uh, the kind of title under which uh, this interesting phenomenon. Call it progressive neoliberalism with Nancy Fraser. Um, it can be uh, can be dealt with. So uh, whoever can contribute um, is the liberalism somehow. Even though you might say the social dimension is there that you contribute to the public good, and you could say, but just the way in which it's done, it's parceling out the individual from social context, relations, it's each individual that has to prove. And, and of course, the uh, it's more than contractual idea, actually. Uh, you know, a contractual idea is behind much of immigration policy in the classic immigration countries. Uh, you have to give us something in terms of being uh, healthy and not sick and productive, and you will get something in return. Uh, in terms of uh, residence and the possibility to build a new life in, in the promised land. So there's this, it, also neoliberalism is high on contract. And of course, contract again is something that is a classic liberal idea, the whole idea of the modern uh, state from Hobbes on is based on the idea of, of, of a contract. I take just liberalism properly understood to cut that short now, because it leads into the wrong direction, I understand that now, even though it's something that preoccupies me for, for my next project, really to, uh, to
to distinguish these two ideas and the forces um, and their realizations um, out there in the in the real in the real world. Um, uh, liberalism, properly understood, is 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 uh, is, is something uh, as John Rawls would have formulated it, in, in, you know, with a different principle. Neoliberalism actually is just the the first principle of justice, and not the second one. <laughs> what is the first one? Is this equal uh, equal rights? I forget the exact uh, phrasing in Rawls now, and I'm also not an adept and sufficiently cognizant of of of, of Rawls, who is an immensely complicated, um, uh, difficult to read thinker. But there are these two justice principles, and the first one is is, is basically just equal opportunity, um, uh, equal rights, and and the second one is a compensatory idea that that to, inequality is to be justified only to the degree that the worst of in society can profit from it or get better through um, an increment in inequality, an increment of, uh, of wealth or of income, of opportunity at the, at the top. And neoliberalism is Rawls only just as principle number one uh, and not the one number two. Of course, then one can question whether this is the canonic uh, uh, liberalism, whether this is just another idiosyncratic one that has seen its days. Uh, and then uh, a lot of people would simply deny the distinction between liberal and neoliberal. But that's what I want to uh, stop, full stop here. How many minutes do I have left, Tony? You have uh, maybe 10 more minutes if you want to use that. Or we can move on. To the second um, dimension of this neoliberalism, nationalism, and nexus. Of course, understanding these populist, um, nationalist, right wing parties today, uh, this nexus is provided for an understanding of this new political phenomenon. So new, actually, it is not. You have these parties for two, three decades in different strengths in different European countries. And of course, the obvious nexus is the oppositional one. I call it the oppositional one in the sense that um, uh, nationalism now is a code word for these parties and movements could also call it populist, if you prefer. The obvious nexus is the one that these movements are in opposition to neoliberalism. And, and this is very simple. Just, uh, you know, uh, the creed of our neoliberal times under the aegis of globalization is opening, opening, opening capital, finance, of course, most importantly, goods, but also to a degree to people. This is how a lot of lefties get on board um, and support um, globalization and this broad kind of uh, progressive neoliberal uh, coalition. Andreas Reckwitz, a German social theorist, recently called it apartistic uh, liberalism to demarcate it from the social democratic one that was in a way more closure and less uh, opening uh, oriented. So one, one the, the, the typical um, uh, view of this uh, of this nexus is that nationalism is an opposition to neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is opening, nationalism is closure. It's kind of completely commonsensical, um, perhaps even sane response to too much opening to say we have to um, 
counterbalance that with um, selecting immigrants more carefully, with closing or cutting down, et cetera, et cetera. So that is the obvious one. But then there is a second type of nationalism in the contemporary condition, which which I call this globalizing uh, uh, moment, which where I call it statist new nationalism. Then I sometimes use the word new, I cannot quite avoid it, but I wouldn't call it neo at least. Yeah. Statist uh, nationalism also is to be considered if one investigates or maps out this neoliberalism, nationalism, nexus. Not just these two forces are oppositional of sorts, but somehow complementary or even mutually conditioning one another, constitutive even. Um, one such expression one could call compensatory new nationalism. That is the uh, movement of wall and fence building, which one can see yeah, exactly since the moment of uh, late 80s, early 90s, actually since the opening of the Berlin Wall, we thought borders are so 80s, as Stefan Mao recently said in a very nice colloquium here at the University of Bern, he wrote a great little book on, on how borders have changed um, um, in, in the globalizing period. They did not just diminish, they became more selective, more open for some, but rapidly more closed to a big majority, more selective, more selectivity. So the compensatory nexus, the compensatory neoliberalism, nationalism nexus is, <laughs> is a form of symbolic politics. And I follow here perhaps too closely uh, Wendy Brown. Uh, it's not her strongest book. Um, um, I forgot the title, Walls and Fences or something. Um, uh, but it's still um, an imaginative book, like all of her work, of course. And, and she sees it as a symbolic uh, reaffirmation of state sovereignty exactly in the moment when it um, becomes weak and weaker. I mean, Donald Trump is the best example for this ridiculous uh, ball there, which is just deflecting. Uh, making it more dangerous, more lethal, but not likely really to, to stop it. Uh, if anything can stop uh, the south to north pressure, it would be the equalization of living conditions between the two. And to the degrees already happening, uh, the pressure at the Mexican border no longer comes from Mexicans because this country has evolved, uh, developed in recent years. It comes from people from further down, from Honduras, from Guatemala, Nicaragua, who uh, simply have to go through Mexico before they can reach uh, um, the United States. So it, that is compensatory, uh, but I have only a few pages on that. It's not my main interest because I want to conclude this whole thing. What, what is the meaning of this damn title in the liberal nationalist? It has a very specific uh, meaning, and it's not denoting the entire scenery that I'm uh, reviewing here in that book. Um, but a very um, specific uh, kind of statist uh, nationalism in our contemporary time, 
let me just refresh my own mind. Uh, you know, I've never given that. I've never talked about this book, actually, even though it's out for a year now. Already the critique of the mice uh, has touched it. Nobody really cares much about it. But that's the fate of, uh, I think, most books, many books written, and perhaps it's just one of those. So statist nationalism is my key word here, and not just the compensatory, but the constitutive um, uh, logic uh, um, that goes through various stages, which I will not bother you much. I mean, the first constitutive mutually conditioning um, constellation is, of course, in terms of Thatcherism and in terms of regionalism. I mean, these were the uh, first neoliberal uh, programs uh, in Western lands. It all started in Chile, of course. I will not talk uh, about that. And it was framed by nationalism, by a strong conservative kind of uh, backward-looking nationalism in uh, um, um, Thatcher, very, very obvious. And, and she framed, actually, her, her, her uh, economic policies and attack on uh, on uh, on various welfare programs. Um, she framed it with a throaty little war war against the Falkland Islands, and Britain will no longer be pushed around. So, the first liberal writers already, or the first critics of neoliberalism, for example, Hermann Heller, uh, contemporary of Carl Schmidt in Weimar, Germany, wrote a remarkable little article called Authoritarian Liberalism. And he already observed that the defense of markets and market freedoms requires very often an authoritarian, strong state. That is not the same as nationalism, I, I understand, but which is then often connected to a conservative elite nationalism of a backward-looking kind. That is the first constitutive uh, um, um, incarnation um, of statist uh, 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 nationalism here. Um, but that is not the most interesting one. Interesting is observed, is observable actually, that neoliberalism has shifted its uh, political coalition. It really was first allied with conservative parties very often subscribing to kind of conservative elite nationalism as in Thatcher and uh, Rank. But then when the third way appeared, um, it actually, uh, uh, neoliberalism was endorsed by the left, was endorsed by the left. And uh, uh, then this whole thing that uh, neoliberalism requires nationalism no longer made sense. And, and that is actually the, uh, the, the, the constellation that Nancy Fraser um, had in mind when she coined this uh, cursory notion of, she never really fleshed it out, uh, of uh, progressive uh, uh, neoliberalism. Uh, the interesting new development is indeed when neoliberal ideas themselves become couched in a nationalist idiom. 
And there are two policy fields on which I could observe that. One is social policy, the Schröder Hartz IV reforms, or David Cameron's um, universal credit reforms a few years later, they live on the idea that an individual must never be a cost factor to the collectivity. Everyone who is productive is part of a non-ethnic nation, if you want to call this collectivity nation. Um, Gerd Schröder called it something like die faulen Säcke gehören nicht zu uns, the, the lazy bumps. Uh, these are the only ones who are out. Whoever is fleißig is part of us. In David Cameron, he called it the aspiration nation. Um, when he introduced this universal credit thing around 2012. And the aspiration nation is also one in which those who are unemployed are suspicious to the degree that they don't want to become reintegrated as speedily as possible into the labor market. And of course, immigrants to a degree that, that they are on the dole, uh, family unifiers and asylum seekers, uh, they also are not part of this. This neoliberalism is strongly, uh, neoliberal nationalism is strongly visible, um, more or less strongly visible. I had to look very carefully, and maybe my eyesight is not strong enough, maybe I saw it all wrong in the end. Uh, I was mightily influenced by a little text which has never been uh, translated into, into, into English, unfortunately, by a very uh, remarkable uh, German sociologist called Stefan Lessenich, who is now actually the director of the uh, uh, famous Frankfurt Institute for Social Research. Previously, he was uh, uh, at the University of Munich, and, and he published a remarkable book, Die Neuerfindung des Sozialen, the, 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 re, you know, the rediscovery or re, uh, re the refashioning of, of the social. It's a very, very good little book about the change from classic T.H. Uh, Marshallian social citizenship, welfareism towards neoliberal uh, uh, social policy. And, and he also had a keen sense for the collective uh, implications of the uh, new policies, which can be uh, indeed, he doesn't use the word neoliberal nationalism, but which can be, could be called that. And the second field in which this new type of uh, non-ethnic, also non-civic, we might actually talk about how neoliberal may differ from a liberal or civic nationalism, which I take to be exchangeable terms, even though also your opinions are divided. So the second policy field on, in which you can observe that um, um, neoliberal nationalism is citizenship policy citizenship policy. I have a long, long chapter on, on citizenship policy uh, and will not uh, belabor you uh, and bother you with that. The main idea of contemporary citizenship reform is earned citizenship. Citizenship is not a right, it's a privilege. It must be earned. You must demonstrate that you're worthy of it. This idea of earned citizenship, I don't know to what degree you find it in Sweden. Uh, the UK invented it. Uh, under Blair, there was the explicit uh, reference to earned citizenship. Then it became the more dormant 
You find it in Austria, um, you find it in Australia, and recently, kind of made a big, big, uh, um, even word. It is not uh, in word, uh, you find it in spirit. In, in, in Germany, it would be impossible to have verdiente Staatsbürgerschaft, that, that makes, uh, <laughs> linguistically speaking, little sense. Uh, and just flows better uh, than verdiente or something. So uh, sometimes there are also linguistic hurdles to adopt the uh, Anglo idiom into into a different uh, uh, language with different melodies and rhythms. So Ernst's citizenship is both neoliberal and nationalist. It is neoliberal nationalism incarnated. Uh, the neoliberal element is you have to um, show. Uh, that you are productive, that you are not on the dole. Social welfare, um, um, past record of social welfare um, uh, use um, or reception disqualifies you. You have to be in work. Um, and it is um, a privilege that is gracefully... Um, handed out uh, by uh, the receiving society and it is as the dutch immigration minister called it the highest price the the price as i would translate in german first was dutch the highest price not not price in terms of cost price but price you win the price you are the winner with the z the highest price it somehow um, the granting of citizenship sacralizes the collectivity, not as an ethnic collectivity, but as a collectivity of the thrifty. Thriftiness, independence, um, productivity. The citizens of such a nation are worker citizens, if you want. That's a polemical notion that a British colleague introduced in this context. It's quite helpful. Not citizens um, generally, but only specific types of uh, citizens. So uh, that is neoliberal nationalism. It has a very limited meaning, actually, in terms of the book. Um, I talk about it in very limited um, um, sections of it. I have not yet even found a third policy field apart from social policy with these two examples from Germany and the UK uh, and from citizenship policy. I, I would love to have a third <laughs> policy to thicken it a little. Um, to a degree, this title is, is misleading. Um, it's catchy. It's to provoke attention. the combination of neoliberal and nationalism is a provocation uh, because, again, the usual way of connecting these two things is by way of opposition. Either you're in favor of opening, then you're neoliberal, or you're in favor of closure, then you're nationalist. And uh, th that is not necessarily so. Uh, that is one of the things I really put a lot of attention on to figure out how that operates uh, in, in certain policy fields, uh, always with a, I'm always combining, uh, in a way, high-flying uh, 
bigger ideas with, but you must always find it on the ground. And I have always made a very meticulous attempt to whatever I claim at the level of, 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 of theory that I find correspondences to it in mostly in the world of, of, of policy and of, of, of lawmaking. Uh, in that respect, it's a very political science book, uh, not political science, of course, understood as in the mainstream, a rational choice or whatnot, uh, very loose understanding of political science. There's not so much sociology in this damn book, but I always have been uh, a ferreter, a traitor of my own discipline. Never found myself much of a sociologist, but always more, more interested in a, in a kind of institutionalist uh, uh, um, a mode of proving empirical uh, political science. I shut down now. I didn't have a single note. I didn't have a single goddamn note. Thank you very much, uh, Christian. It was a very, very interesting, and I will just be very short um, um, to to ask a few questions, and then I have a, uh, a few questions from the audience. As our um, audience, our listeners are from diverse and interdisciplinary group, I would I would ask you, can you please elaborate what is new in new nationalism, or what you call neo-nationalism, and why it has emerged now? This is the first thing, and the second thing will be the one that you mentioned in your book, this move from uh, immigration policy from what you called uh, selected, selecting by origin to selecting by merit. Was it a liberal or neoliberal move? And uh, and the third question would be where we go from here in the sense of kind of theorizing, conceptualizing what kind of nationalism or nationalisms arise in neoliberal context, in neoliberal configurations. Uh, and, and then we will have uh, other questions for the remaining 30 minutes or so. Thank you. These are very big questions, and uh, one is tempted just to start from the very beginning, <laughs> because <laughs> in a way I try to answer these questions. Uh, uh, what's new? What's uh, new about uh, nationalism, and why now? Well, um, new is, is certainly this this neoliberal nationalism to the degree that exists is quite new, I would think. And why now? Because we live in neoliberal times. I mean, as simple as that. I spent a lot of uh, effort, actually, in the earlier pages of this chapter, from which I mostly uh, um, talked about, on, on laying out what is, what is neoliberalism, what is a neoliberal state, what is a neoliberal rationality more broadly understood, very much influenced uh, by uh, what uh, much bigger brains than me have said about it, from Wendy Brown to Colin Crouch to, uh, to Wolfgang Streeck in particular. I learned a lot from, uh, from Wolfgang, Wolfgang Streeck in that respect. Um, um, so, um, these are neoliberal times, uh, and neoliberal times, really, to make it as primitive as possible, is the opening of society. So, in a way, a new cleavage has uh, emerged. I fully buy into that. It may not be as simplistic that the old one no longer exists. It's, it's layering, not a replacement of the left-right classic uh, socio-economic uh, class cleavage by this new, call it an identity cleavage, uh, by some call it that way, uh, which is no longer left versus right, uh, in, but in terms of uh, open versus closed. Uh, um, and so in such setting, to the degree that you have a, a big uh, political coalition, 
favoring the opening of societies, and it is indeed a coalition, um, it is partially lefties, converted lefties, lifestyle lefties, you know, those who are on the, on the platforms, <laughs> who are designing platform capitalism and all of that. The origin of that is very much left. These were, these were yeah, anarchists, uh, sometimes lefties, uh, um, uh, with, with big ideas of opening up knowledge to the whole planet, uh, etc. So this opening, uh, um, um, the new cleavage uh, opening is, is driven by a coalition of, 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 of new middle class and, um, and uh, what can you call it, capital. Um, and um, um, those who rebel against it is, of course, no longer social democrats. They were once the major opposition party under nation-state capitalism, social democratic capitalism, whatever you call it. Uh, now, the new opposition, in a way, is these populist parties and right-wingers. Um, to me, that explains enough why now you have the revival to a degree that it is a revival. You know, this, this ethno-nationalism idea was actually only formulated uh, when there was already multiculturalism um, on the ground. It is a reactive, as I said it already, um, move. Um, the majority claiming the same privileges that have already been granted to the minorities, right? The right to difference, but also for us. Uh, also, that's fairly new. Um, so there's no nationalism idea that it claims to be not racist. It all has these um, almost politically correct um, um, uh, fashioning and presentation to just almost um, forcibly um, prevent the appearance, this is just a rebirth of racism of the old, of the old kind. It's not, it's, it's new. And of course, what is even newer is this, to the degree that it exists, the statist uh, variant of new nationalism, which is not ethno uh, in any way, but indeed is neoliberal to the core. Um, these examples uh, I gave you. Um, so, I mean, to me, this is, I don't have more of an answer about what's new and why now than, than just this, and it's basically repeating what what I try to say. Selecting by merit. <laughs> I never used that uh, word. Um, I think uh, Ayelet Shachar used it. Uh, and uh, she was always very generous with me. I think she did it in the context that previously somebody had said something about selecting by origin, so now you have selecting by merit. Is it liberal or neoliberal? That's a very good question. Uh, if, of course, merit is um, the focus, and it's clearly neoliberal, right? I, I do think at the uh, in the context of... Uh, uh, you know, one of the problems of this idiotic Zoom is that you always have to observe yourself while you're speaking. You get kind of crazy. You can run. Well, I will not bother, but I always talk to myself. 
I need to. I, I do it for Tomiko only because he's he's a great guy, and he helped me out with the teaching him <laughs> via remote. Actually, therefore, I should be thankful that there's Zoom uh, here. And I just hate. Uh, okay. Um, um, it, 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 yeah, high-skilled immigration policy is clearly immigration policy in the spirit of neoliberalism. Absolutely no question. But selecting by merit is only a very... Uh, no, it doesn't encompass the changes that um, uh, immigration policies have undergone in the past 50 years or so. Because the, the, the big change really is in terms of a, of a prohibition of what one must never do, must never judge individuals on the basis of uh, their skin color or their, um, their markers that they have uh, from birth and that they cannot change. Of course, we know from Parsons, the opposite of uh, ascription is achievement. And I mentioned this uh, binary myself earlier. But just to be critical of, of discrimination is, is at heart a liberal idea, I think. Is at heart a liberal idea um, to judge the individual um, not by its groupist uh, features, but by what she does and not by what she is. Of course, if does just means married and how productive you are and, and so forth, then, then you're in the realm of neoliberalism. I mean, you can have a completely different understanding of what, uh, even what merit is, uh, to be civic-minded, for example, to have demonstrated that you did good for the community. Yeah? Um, that also I would consider more classically liberal to the degree that a proper understanding of liberal approximates a social democratic idea a Rawlsian idea. Um, um, okay, I will not repeat all of that. And thirdly, well, what kind of nationalism you have in neoliberal times? I, I think that is going back to uh, what I have been trying more in a waffling mode across in the last 50 minutes. So I will not. Thanks. Thanks. We have three questions, Christian. One is from Elizabeth, and then Ansgar and Alexandra. So please, Elizabeth, or is yours? There. Okay. Thank you so much, Professor Jopke. It was really inspiring to, to follow your thoughts on this, this whole series. I haven't read your book, but I have been dealing with these issues myself for years, and I've been largely inspired by Nancy Fraser and Wendy Brown, as you have been. And part so it leads me to my question. I want to dwell on what I've written. That's not interesting. But my question would be, and it, it really touches on your definition of the new nationalism, uh, because in a way I've seen, follow Wendy Brown in her ruin, in the ruins of neoliberalism, how the socialists diminished and destroyed by neoliberalism as an economic force. And where you really, I also followed this through organizational researchers and economists who really argue that that uh, you turn identities 
uh, individual identities from being a citizen to being a consumer in a global market. And so, of course, that has gone with the global opening of markets and the uh, enthusiasm for privatization and marketization of social services combined with the distrust or neglect or really an eagerness to destroy the social services that has been indicative for what we used to call welfare states. So my question would be around the notion of consumer rather than citizen. If this is something that you have been worked with, so if you would think that it would be helpful, because to me that has been a key notion to see what has been going on and, and also the reaction in terms of nationalism and, and very eager to sort of follow your arguments further in uh, relation to the neoliberal nationalism because that's to me a little bit of a new a new door in this whole field so i'm curious but but i would like to ask you that question because it's, so it's been very very inspiring to listening to you thank you so much christian would you like to collect questions and then respond because there are a few other questions or you would respond one by one we're like having probably 21 minutes better to collect Okay, so next is Ansgar. Okay, uh, thank you very much for, for your uh, rich speech. Um, I'm, I'm not a political scientist and uh, I have not read your book either, but I read the article, uh, Tornike Distributed, so that's my, that's my, my, my stand of knowledge. <laughs> Um, so I'm, I'm a bit sorting out uh, for myself to understand neoliberalism, and um, I'm so I'm still not sure. Is it is it more uh, something uh, you say neoliberal times? So then it's something just happening, just everywhere, or is it a kind of ideology? So like liberal was an ideology, and we have these uh, opponents of liberal. Uh, ideas and we have this is one 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 um, current in society and, and therefore we could speak of neoliberal sometimes you you talk about it as a, an ideology like uh, Thatcher and Reagan and these people uh, but then it shifts it seems to me it shifts to something that is general there and we, we cannot avoid it somehow it's just a kind of Hegelian uh, development now we are in a neoliberal age so what exactly uh, is it and the second part of my question um, is is now the relationship to nationalism would you say and so it, it second part depends uh, on the first part so is it would, would you say that nationalism now is uh, under is is uh, let's say neoliberalism influences uh, nationalism in these very interesting ways you described in your article uh, as compensatory or constitutive. So would that mean neoliberalism is the main force, nationalism is second, second stage? Thank you. Thanks, Ansgar and Alexandra. Um, thank you very much for your talk. I also have not read the book now. I feel like I should have before I finished my PhD book because it really, really speaks and provides some useful terms, specifically status nationalism. So I 
did research on Ukraine, and that's just sums it up, I, I feel like. Um, and I talked about neoliberal conservatism because I was focusing on gender politics. But, I mean, kind of, kind of coming out of that, but a lot of what you said could also relate, and that's where my question comes from. So when we, when you talk about migration and citizenship policy, uh, I buy all of your arguments, and it just seems extremely uh, applicable to me. Um, and you did speak about social policy, and there maybe I just missed your point, and I would maybe kind of ask you to um, repeat or elaborate. So... Uh, what is nationalist about those social policies that are obviously neoliberal? So in a way, if we speak about countries uh, where migration is not, or immigration is not the key social problem, um, then how, how neoliberal nationalism uh, reveals itself, how earned citizenship, like would you say that we could speak of earned citizenship when we don't talk about immigrants? Um, yeah, I think that's it. Thank you. And that's the last one is uh, from Mika. So please, Mika, or it's yours, and then Christian has to... Thank, uh, thank you. The question is, um, statist nationalism, could it be called also corporate nationalism to the extent that the state is perceived as a kind of business corporation? <laughs> I take an example. Um, in Finland, it looks like the new populist right has combined ethno-nationalism and corporation type, so that Finland is like a law company, a law firm, where uh, the, uh, the citizens are the owners of the uh, corporation, and the immigrants are new lawyers trying to earn their way in, first as junior uh, fellows, getting their residence permit, and then eventually getting the highest prize. That's very interesting uh, what you uh, said, uh, Amika. Uh, in Germany, they spoke about Deutschland Inc. Standort Deutschland. And that was uh, in the Schröder period and uh, um, in the early moments of these very uh, drastic labor market reforms, Hartz IV. Um, and indeed, there is this, yeah, that's a good, a good way. Uh, um, in a way, uh, I wouldn't call all status nationalism corporate nationalism. Uh, the, in, in, in my own kind of ridiculous terms, of course, the compensatory logic doesn't fit that bill of corporate. But corporate nationalism is just another word for, uh, indeed, for, um, for neoliberal nationalism. And as I learned from you in the case of Finland, uh, uh, it's not a statist in the sense of mainstreamish, but also the extreme right, uh, the populists are on board here. Um, very interesting, um, and um, uh, thank you for that uh, commentary. In the order of um, of of, uh, of questions, Elizabeth asked about the consumer. No, I've not at all thought about um, consumer as, as a category, um, but it is important. And why is it important? Um, and then perhaps an omission on my part. Um, uh, in, in my view of how uh, capitalism has transformed itself, it's a very Strekian view, and it has one important blinder. The blinder of the Strekian view is what happened in the past 40 years is, is a conspiracy of capital. It, it's kind of 
capital renouncing the pact with democracy, as he says it quite explicitly in some. The legitimation crisis is not as young Habermas would have believed, the motivation being lost among ordinary people for, for working and toiling. No, the legitimation crisis was actually capitalism uh, renouncing the pact uh, with, uh, with their respective uh, society. And there's something wrong about that, because it leads to a conspiratorial view Qua consumers, we are all complicit in war in the last 40 years, 50 years. Because what also happened is a significant lowering of, of, of basic living costs uh, for food, for clothing. Housing is a certain exception here, of course. Um, um, it, 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 that's the one thing that, that Thomas Piketty had overlooked, if I may make this arrogant sounding remark here because he's a brain so much bigger than mine. Uh, Thomas Piketty, uh, the idea is uh, the one percent has run away, which to a degree it did. Um, but even if um, wages in large sections of even the well-doing population, call it middle class, have stagnated, what also has to be considered that buying shrimps in a supermarket in 2021 costs only half as much as it did in 1970. I just reviewed a remarkable book by my good friend Randall Hansen uh, of the University of Toronto, and I visited a workshop earlier this week, uh, earlier uh, later last week, uh, discussing that manuscript, and he brings that out very clearly. This um, that through consumers through their consumer role, the middle class has been complicit in the new restructuring of capitalism, away from classic welfare and torts. Uh, you have to prove yourself, you have to earn yourself, you have to work if you have to show that that you are worthy if you get uh, if you get benefits uh, from, from 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 the collectivity. Um, Enough for that, because our time is already off, and the other questions go back again to the same uh, murky business of uh, what is neoliberalism? And Ansgar asked, is it just a description of a period? Is it an ideology? There are so different readings of what neoliberalism is. In an interesting book by Michael Mann, the, I think the last uh, um, volume um, to this massive, uh, it's called The History of Power or something, or Social Power or something, um, Michael Mann, that uh, historical sociologist uh, from UCLA, he, he considers neoliberal policy just happened in the, in the 80s to early 90s and only in some countries, in the Anglo-Saxon countries. And, has only peripherally, if at all, showed up uh, in continental Europe. And that's a very narrow understanding of, of neoliberalism. I take it more a broad, rational um, mindset, almost Foucaultian style, if you like, even though I'm not at all a follower of Foucault, uh, but uh, more as Wendy Brown presented it in a remarkable book about undoing the demos, I think it's called. That is, uh, and she demonstrated the workings of, of, of neoliberalism in the speeches of Barack Obama, who was considered a savior after 
Halliburton and George W. Bush and even making warfare a private, a private gain affair, right? With the Iraq uh, uh, um, power. Um, and she found in the speeches of Barack Obama just the same idiom. Um, um, if, 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 if everything has to pay off. And he actually phrased even a justice agenda in, you know what, it pays, it makes us richer. So Barack Obama, that savior, right, uh, spread the neoliberal gospel. I have one actually part in the book where I show that in, in this, um, 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 what is it uh, called in America? Uh, they also call it earned citizenship, uh, the, liberal, the, the legalization of, of, of young um, uh, immigrants who, against, no, they, who couldn't decide to move to America illegally because their parents took them. And, um, and now the question, the dreamers, the dreamers, right? And, and the whole dream uh, policy and act story, the dream act. You know what? Obama did not say, Every child that before five years or what not was brought to America illegally should be legalized because it was not her or his choice. No, what he said, only if you prove yourself, either through having joined the army, very concretely, or if you can show you enrolled in college, then you can get legalized. This is horrible. From a humane point of view, just to divide this innocent population who were dragged to America by their parents. So essentially that means somebody who's just a regular guy who didn't have chances and who stole and you may have, uh, have a penal record, even though a very light one in America that goes very fast. We have a strong penal record with idiotic uh, uh, law violations such as stealing uh, a DVD. Uh, uh, they have to go. This is awful. This is not liberal. Even Ronald Reagan was more liberal. Less captured by the neoliberal spirit because it just started at that time. When he uh, refashioned, uh, he had still this idea of America as an asylum of the oppressed in the world. For Obama, that's totally gone. Only college guys. Guys like him, right? Preferably uh, uh, graduates from Harvard goddamn university, right? They are good Americans. Okay. Um, goes too long now, and I think I should just stop, isn't it? We are beyond our time, but you are the ringmaster, Tony. Um, yeah, if, uh, if Aaron wants to ask a question, we have still uh, time. If not, then we'll wrap it. I mean, I, I can definitely ask a question, though no one should feel uh, burdened by it to, to remain for over time. But uh, I'll go ahead. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the article that Tornica circulated, the old, old wine skins or old wine and new wine. You, you got it. Um, you know what I'm talking about. So I guess I'm curious about what you think is the logic at work in the interface between statist populisms, I'm sorry, statist nationalisms, and then a populist nationalism. And so maybe we can observe this in 
I don't know, the Trump phenomenon in some ways, or in the ways that um, politicians in Denmark, I'm thinking of the Social Democratic Party and Meta Fredriksson uh, sort of supposedly conceding to the far right with uh, a right-leaning overburdensome immigration policy and so on. Not that that's new there. But so I can see one narrative, right, where the um, neoliberal order, even left-leaning members of it in a fashion, are making concessions to a populist nationalism, I can see another in which something like the Trump phenomenon is actually complicit in what you've called neoliberal nationalism. And its rhetoric is is functioning as part of a broader interaction that permits neoliberal nationalism to push even further, a form of status nationalism on on your account. And so... I guess that's what I'm most curious about. Like, what do you see as as it work really in the interaction between the the populist nationalist rhetoric that we see associated with Trump and others, and um, the neoliberal order that seems to still be dominant and somehow include, uh, reincorporate into the body uh, those those populist elements. Of course, the. Uh dividing line between these two categories, statist, populist nationalisms, is a very permeable one. <laughs> um, I had never meant, uh, or I would never uh, consider Trump, uh, as long as he was a president, and uh, moving from from the populist end to the statist end. Um, but the line is permeable, of course. Um, because in a democratic state, um, everybody can be the next and everyone can be the next uh, government. And, and it happened in terms of Brexit and in terms of Trump. The shock was exactly that was what was previously just opposition. Suddenly it's a dominant regime. Yeah? And then, of course, it carries the the colors and the inflection of uh, of the original protest, and actually, the Donald never left campaign mode, as we know. He he never stopped campaigning, so he didn't even understand that uh, being in charge uh, requires a different way of speaking and a different way of uh, even behaving. Uh, um, it, it, it to me, so so the line is permeable in a democratic state, and there are other examples. Uh, uh, even in Western Europe, under Sardini, when he was a strong man um, uh, in in the first actually populist majority government in, in, in Western Europe, that was very short-lived, of course. Uh, it, I still reserve status as a category, not just... Um, it, it means something different in a way. It, it has no populist connotations this, as, as a category. It, it simply means the, these these earned citizenship is one example, uh, neoliberal social policy, uh, the aspiration nation, Cameroons. These guys were not really populist. These guys, that, that is the mainstream. And, and a lot of status nationalism is, 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 is actually um, of social democratic uh, origins, um, particularly uh, 
in, in the German case of, 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 of the Schroeder uh, uh, Fischer uh, government. So, uh, yeah, um, uh, Trump is not equaling um, statism. He remains in the, in the populist uh, quarter. But again, the line is not a watertight one. Thanks very much. We're actually perfect on time. And please join me in thanking Christian Jovke for an excellent talk. And uh, thanks everybody who participated in this. Thanks a lot, Christian. Have a good evening, everybody. Mm -hmm.